Dear Father, we recognize from these verses that the entire Trinity is involved in our salvation, that the entire Trinity is involved in our fellowship with you. And we praise you for that, that your Son, the Son of God and the Son of Man, came down to redeem us so that we might live in fellowship with you. And also he gave us the promise of eternal life. That since we died together with him and are identified in his death, we are also identified with his resurrection, and we have the promise of eternal life. We have the spirit by which we can live this life today. We praise you and we thank you for these riches of grace. In the name of your son, Jesus, amen. All right, you may all be seated. So we are in the second cycle of 1 John, remember he goes in cycles and he layers on doctrine after doctrine, going deeper and deeper, building on what we already know. And that's going to be a main point this morning. And this is part two of the section of scripture that we looked at last week. We're going to continue looking at the Antichrist and the anointing. The main idea for this morning is that the most basic need of a new believer is doctrine. The Spirit teaches every believer doctrine, but not all believers learn doctrine. Just as we might sit in a classroom and the teacher is teaching all the students in the classroom, but not all of them are paying attention. If you learn from the world rather than from the Spirit, your spiritual growth is undermined. Departing from fellowship with God, you destroy your intimacy with Him. If you adopt the thinking of the world rather than the thinking of Scripture, you will not be in intimate fellowship with God. This passage from 1 Peter kind of captures this idea in a verse. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, meaning growing in your understanding of what is true about you in your salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Last week, part one, we spent the whole time developing the idea of these two different spirits, the Antichrist spirit and the anointing. This was addressed to the kids, the young ones, the infants in Christ, because this is even the most basic thing about the Christian life. Even the most basic believer still has the Holy Spirit within them, teaching them. They have no need to go to the world for doctrine. They have the Bible for doctrine, and they have the Holy Spirit to impress upon them the importance of the spiritual concepts held in the scriptures. We saw that the Antichrist spirit is indeed that kingdom which Satan has imposed on God's kingdom, a kingdom of a different will, where all in the kingdom subject their will to the king. We are supposed to be subject to God's will. We were created for that purpose, and we are redeemed for that purpose. But Satan has imposed a different kingdom, and this is the Antichrist kingdom. Anything that is different than the will of God is the will of Satan, because his will is that God be usurped. And so this is the Antichrist spirit, both anti in opposition and in replacement. If you remember from our study in Genesis, God had a purpose for creation. 
And that purpose was ultimately his glory. And how he was going to do that was to put a man over this creation who would rule on God's behalf. And that man is Jesus Christ. And so Satan, in attempts to usurp God, has copied God's structure. And he plans to put a man subject to his will rather than to God's will over this earth so that he can claim authority over this earth. And now we know that Satan is a fool in this attempt, that he will not succeed and that he cannot even succeed. It is a foolish endeavor. Even if he were to do that, he would not usurp God. But it is impossible because God's glory, or God will be glorified in his creation. So this is the Antichrist spirit. The Antichrists oppose and replace the Christ with self-will, which is the will of the devil. The Antichrists are the citizens of Satan's cosmos system. The coming Antichrist or the false Messiah will embody the will of Satan in his demonic scheme to usurp the plan of God by placing his man as king over creation in subjection to his will. The entire book of Revelation deals with that time in future history. But here we have the opposing prospect for the believers. Whereas all unbelievers have only the world to draw from their source of knowledge, believers have a different source. And now we still live in the world. We still live in Satan's cosmos system, but we are to be in the world and not of it. This leaves the possibility that a Christian will choose not to access the source of power in the Holy Spirit, the learning of the Spirit. They will instead learn from the world, identifying with their citizenship physically in the cosmos rather than spiritually in the heavenlies. And so John has made another play on words. We should be used to John's plays on words by now. There is the charisma, the anointing, and the Christos, the anointed one. Those who have the charisma are subject to Christos, the Christ. But then there is the Antichristos, the usurper, and his citizens, the Antichristoi. But here is the anointing. An anointing was given to prophets, priests, and kings to symbolically set them aside for their duty. The symbolism pointed to a divine invisible reality, divine empowerment for their task. And our anointing gives us the capacity to function in the Christian life. You might say that when we were born, we were hardwired into the power grid of the cosmos system. And when the Holy Spirit indwelled us, God put a battery pack within us. Now we can choose to still draw our power from the power grid of Satan. This is walking in the flesh. Or we can stop off that power grid by renewing our minds with the scripture, with God's word, meditating on it, adopting it as our method of thinking. And by doing that, we turn on the switch and we are powered by the battery pack of the Holy Spirit. The anointing is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which has been permanently given to each believer at the moment of faith. 
This anointing is a positional truth. That means it is a permanent truth. It is not something you experience. It's something that's true about you. Just as the song we just sang, I stand redeemed by the blood of Jesus. Your position is your standing. It is what Jesus has done on your behalf. So this anointing, this gift of the Holy Spirit is something that is true about us, whether or not we experience it, whether or not we feel like we have the Holy Spirit, we do. We are told so in scripture, and it is our responsibility and our duty to believe that. But it must be relied on experientially for practical sanctification. If you want this truth about you to actually work in you today and not just be your hope for the future, you have to depend on that and not your flesh. Depend on the empowering of the spirit, depend on Bible doctrine. Without relying on the Holy Spirit for learning, even a believer can spend his life on earth serving Satan's cosmos system. Now next week, we're going to look at a verse that tells us we do not want to be ashamed at his coming. This would be a believer who is ashamed at his coming. Not because he is not going with him when he comes, but because he has not given Christ his reasonable service on earth. He has not been sanctified by God's word. He has not walked as his position indicates he is. Much like going, to, uh, going into public as a family, your parents might tell you, you're representing the family when we are out in public. I expect you to act like it. Now you can go out into public and act like hellions, and what's your parents going to do about it? They can scold you. They can tell you, don't do that. But guess what? The damage is already done. The public has seen that you are not acting as your position in your family would have you to be. And this is the same way. When you get home, you are not going to be rewarded for your behavior in public. This is kind of the same idea here. We want to be rewarded for our behavior on earth. And in order to do that, we have to know what our position in the family of God is and to walk like that. First Timothy 6.10 says, The love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Believers who have been enticed by the lusts of the world, who have walked away from their faith and they did not lose their salvation, but they were grieved in this life. And so Paul exhorts Timothy, flee from these things. For the man of, uh, you man of God and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of what? Of works? Of faith. Fight the good fight of faith. Keep the faith. If you lose that, you lose your ability to serve God. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Know your eternal calling. Know your eternal destiny. Know where you are going. Keep your eyes on the horizon. When you're driving, keep your eyes 300 feet ahead, not three feet ahead. 
Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So those are the two sources, or the two spirits, rather. The Antichrist spirit, Satan's system, and the anointing spirit, the Holy Spirit, which allows us to walk in God's system. It gives us the ability to do what the flesh cannot do. And so we look at two sources, specifically two sources for information. Because remember, information is where the war is won and lost in the Christian life. What do we know about who God is? If you do not know that God loves you, then you will not walk a good life. You will be afraid. One of the most primary doctrines that we must understand is God's love for us. With a knowledge of his love, we understand our security in him, our relationship to him, what he has done for us. We have to understand, uh, here, let's get into our confidence in truth. We want to remember a bit of the structure. We had parents, youths, and infants, where in those infants, the paideia, the children, because this is the most basic doctrines for the most basic Christians. In other words, every single person at any stage in their spiritual walk should be able to grasp these truths. Usually, we are told, I am writing to you, I am writing to you, I have written to you, or I wrote to you. John follows the same pattern, but a little different. He addresses the kids, and then he tells them why he's not writing to them. And then he tells them why he is writing to them. So a negative reason and then a positive reason. We'll look at the negative reason first. First, we have to ask that famous Richard Nixon question. What did they know and when did they know it? This is a good question for the believers. What doctrine did you know? What doctrine did you understand? And at what point in your spiritual walk did you know it? There's an amazing truth here. In 1 John 2.21, we read, I have not written to you because you have not known the truth, but because you have known it, and because no lie comes from the truth. He is speaking to the infants in Christ, and he is telling them not to be dissuaded by the high-class speech of those frauds who come into their congregation giving them all sorts of philosophies that are entertaining to the ear. And he tells these infants, these children, you have known it. This kind of sounds to me like telling my baby nephew, don't listen to the college professor. He doesn't know what he's talking about. You do. This is fascinating, isn't it? This is the position of the believer in Christ. From the moment you believe, you have a different source of information, a source of truth. In fact, the only source that truth can come from. Whereas they are blocked off from the source of truth because they have denied truth. And so whatever comes out of their mouth from their vain philosophies of mankind cannot measure up at all to the knowledge that even the simplest believer has in their saving faith. Now, 
I don't think the NASB has the best translation of this, but the New King James Version does. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and that no lie is of the truth. He doesn't have three reasons for writing. He has two reasons and two things that they know. <clears throat> the new or the uh, NASB translates this as because, because all of the Hati clauses could be causal. And in fact, when you see these three red particles here, these mean because, but they could also mean that. It has two different meanings. When they see them all paralleled next to each other, a simple translation is just to make them all sound the same. But sometimes words have different meanings even in the same sentence. I haven't been home since going to college since I enjoy my independence. The first sense is temporal. Tells you a set of time. Second sense is causal, the reason. She told me that she didn't want that toy that you gave her. This word does double duty and even triple duty. The first one is indirect discourse. It tells us the thought, the actual words that someone might say or think. The second one is demonstrative. It says the toy, which is near or far, either conceptually or physically. And the third one is a relative pronoun, referring back to that toy. Three different uses of the same word that. And that is exactly what we have in 1 John 2.21. Not three different uses or three of the same uses of the same word. Now this is odd because translators don't like their structures to look like this. They don't like to subordinate like clauses. But John is an exception. John's always an exceptional case. And one test case that we can do is if we write them all out into their own sentence, do they all make sense? I have not written to you because you have not known the truth. Yes, this makes sense. It takes a little bit of brain work to get there, but it makes sense. He didn't write to them to tell them something they didn't know. He's writing them to remind them of something they already know. Number two, but I have written to you because you have known it, and that it is the truth. This makes perfect sense. But the third one, I have written to you because no lie comes from the truth. This isn't the reason John wrote. It doesn't make sense that John would just write to them because no lie comes from the truth. That's not a reason. That's the content of thought. So instead, I have written to you because you have known it, and because you have known that no lie comes from the truth. Two things that they know. They know what the truth is, and they know that lies don't come from the truth. This is important. If you learn false doctrine, if you learn something that when you read scripture does not comport with scripture, then it's not of God. It is a lie. Lies don't come from the truth. And if this is a lie and it doesn't come from God, then it is accessed from the cosmos system. It is from Satan. There are no white lies. There are no neutral lies. If it does not comport with the truth, you are operating in the power of Satan. Now this can look, in fact, the world gives us this concept of white lies for that reason. 
I needed to tell my boss a lie for why I'm late so he wouldn't fire me. You are depending on your flesh. You are plugged into the power grid of the cosmos. You do not trust that battery pack within you to function properly. Now this may be because the reason you're late to work is because you are plugged into the power grid of the world and not trusting in the spirit to lead and guide you. It's a terrible spiral. You've heard that one lie leads to another lie leads to another lie and suddenly you have a network of lies you need to remember. Well, failure to depend on the Holy Spirit will lead to more dependence on the flesh, will lead to more dependence on the flesh. We have to break the habit, break the cycle by depending on truth. And when we read God's word, we adopt that as truth. This is something we know, something we can trust, and something we can rely on. James speaks well of the source of conflict in the life of the believer. James 3.13 says, Who among you is wise and understanding? I almost think he was a little sarcastic here. Let him show by his good behavior his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. You might think you're getting ahead by lying. You might think it is your only option. It is not. Because this isn't just lying against the truth. This is lying against God who is the truth. You are not living in his reality. You are living in Satan's that requires lying for living. The, this wisdom is not that which comes down from above. This is not spiritual wisdom. But it is earthly, it is natural, and it is demonic. Lying is demonic. Do we understand that? In fact, these three particles comport perfectly with the world, the flesh, and the devil. These are the sources of lies. This is the sphere in which Satan's cosmos system operates, the tools that it uses. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. This is the cosmos system. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering and without hypocrisy. This is what life looks like in dependence on the Spirit. First, for knowledge from God's word, adopting that into your walk, and then it will work its way into your limbs so that you are walking in the spirit. We had to skip this a few weeks ago, so it's a good time now to look at it. Our three enemies as a believer, the trinity of evil in our lives, the world, the flesh, and the devil. We're not only told to beware of these evils, but we are told how. And interestingly enough, the how is the same in all three. Let's see if you can identify them before I point it out when we get to the end. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He is not your friend. But resist him. 
firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. How about the flesh? For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me. Yes, he wants to do good things. But when he's depending on his flesh to do it, the doing of the good is not present. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. This is the sin nature, the flesh. Paul, after his conversion, recognized that he still possesses a sin nature, that he is trying to do things by his flesh, just as he had done when he was subject to the law. The Holy Spirit does not help keep the law. The Holy Spirit was separate from the law. It was a gift given to believers in the present age because of what the law should have taught them, which was that they are perfectly incapable, not perfectly capable. And Paul learned this lesson. In fact, he laments the difficulty of learning this message from, yeah, in Romans 3, in Romans 5, in Romans 6. And in Romans 7, he gets to the futility of trying to keep that system because that system has to be kept in the flesh. It cannot be kept by the Spirit. The Spirit, well, he needs to rely on the Spirit to lead. So he finds then that the principle of evil is present in him. Whatever he sets his flesh to do turns to evil. The one who wants to do good. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its lusts and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of righteousness. This is the command. How does he do that? Too often we are just commanded from the pulpit. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. Do this, do this, do this. How? How often is that question answered? And in fact, it's an important question to have answered every single time because the answer is not what we expect. It's not what our flesh is comfortable with. Our flesh wants a do, do, do answer. What can I do in my flesh to depend on the spirit? Now that is not just a paradox, that's an oxymoron. It doesn't work. It is a contradiction flat out. You cannot do anything in your flesh to depend on the spirit. He says, present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. How do you do that? And your members as instruments of righteousness to God. How do we do that? He already told us in Romans 6.3. The verb isn't really active enough for us. We're allergic to grace. We're also allergic to living by means of the Spirit. Paul reminds his audience, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? He lays down a doctrine, a doctrinal truth. 
If you have believed in Jesus, you are identified with him in his death. Baptism is a word that probably shouldn't exist in the English Bible because it is a Greek word, not an English word. And we import into it a whole bunch of religious hogwash. Baptism, the verb in Greek, means immersion. Specifically, changing by immersion. When you dunk a white cloth into red dye, it does not come out a white cloth. It comes out a red cloth. It has been baptized in the dye, and it is changed. It is something new. There is a new reality about that white cloth so that it cannot be called a white cloth anymore. The same happens when we are baptized in Christ's death. When we believe we are identified, we are immersed into him. And when we come up, we are no longer stained red with sin, but stained white by the blood of Christ. How's that for an extended metaphor? And so this is the doctrine that Paul wants us to work into our thinking. You have died with Christ. This is not a command, go die with Christ. You have already died with Christ. This is a positional truth. It is not something you experience. It's not something you feel. It's something that is true of you that you must believe. Romans 6, 4, therefore we have been buried with him through baptism. Perfect tense. It is finished with present results. We have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. This is true of you. You have already died with him and he died to the world. Know this truth. Work it into your thinking. If this is where your mind goes when it looks at the world, then you will be able to walk in the newness of life because you will recognize the poverty of trusting in the world and the riches of trusting in the Spirit. Romans 6.11, he gives us another active verb that we don't like because we can't do it with our hands. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. This verb, consider, means to reckon, to think, to account, to know that you are dead to sin. You are no longer held by its chains. When you choose to walk in it, you are choosing to walk in it. And yes, it can be a habit that's hard to break, like a drug addict that can't stop shooting up. But guess what? He doesn't have to do that. And neither do we have to sin. We have been set free from that system. And we have all the riches of grace in the spirit just waiting to be accessed. If we move our thinking from the flesh to the spirit, and we do this by learning Bible doctrine and by applying it, to our thinking. James 4.1, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Where does it come from? When there's infighting of the body of Christ, which happens a lot. Where does that come from? That does not come from the spirit. 
Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? And members is your limbs, your body parts. The cosmos system, the world thinking, is working its way into your actual physical being. It is the opposite for the spirit. When Bible doctrine is your source of thinking, it is going to work its way out into your members. How do you do the works that God prepared for you ahead of time? You learn Bible doctrine. You learn his word. You work it into your thinking because you are going to act the way you think. You lust and do not have. So you commit murder. This is a thought process, lust. You want it. You don't have it. It works its way into your physical expression. It works its way into your actions. You murder. You are envious and you cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. It starts in the mind. It moves to the action. You ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. God is my piggy bank. I've been praying and I've been praying and I've been praying for a new car and he hasn't given it to me. He must not love me, right? What's my motive in wanting a new car? This is not true to me, actually. I kind of like my car. What's our motive? It's not seeking his will. I want to conform him to my will. If my prayers are in effort to conform him to my will, rather than to seek his will and the power to do it, then you ask with wrong motives because you ask so you can spend it on your flesh, spend it on your pleasures. James says you adulteresses, you cheaters, you have two mistresses, the spirit and the anti-spirit. You're trying to live in both worlds. It doesn't work. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. His answer is submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. How did Jesus resist the devil? Bible doctrine. He quoted scripture in its context. He knew it in and out. He understood who he was in God. And he understood who Satan was. He understood that this was no friend. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. This is our intimate fellowship with him. And remember 1 John 1, 3, and 4, how do we have fellowship with him? We know him by his word. The, the word of God that was handed down by the saints, we learn that, we learn him. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. He's working backwards from where he went at the first part of this chapter. How do you cleanse your hands? You purify your hearts. How do you purify your hearts? The problem is we're double-minded. 
We're trying to think in the world and in the spirit. Abandon the world. Just think in the spirit. That will purify your hearts and that will cleanse your hands. We do not want to be friends with the world. Two weeks ago, we looked at this verse, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. It does not come from the father. If these are your desires, then your desires are not informed by the father. It comes from the world. The answer to this, flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. How do we do that? Flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, gentleness. Paul kind of explained this earlier in a letter to the Corinthians who had a lot of trouble living in the world. He explains to them that when he was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, and reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with these childish things. Speaking comes from what source? The mind. Our thought process informs the things that we say. Our filter informs the things that we don't say. But still, this is a thought process verb. And then thinking, reasoning. When he was in the world, he thought, spoke, and reasoned like the world. Those were the childish things. And then he grew up. First, he became justified. He was given a different source, the power by which to grow up. And he used it. And his speaking changed because his thinking changed because his reasoning changed. So he says, fight the good fight of what? Of faith. Take hold of what? Eternal life. The doctrine of security. To which you were called and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. This was the faith by which you were saved. Keep it. Don't abandon it. This is how you grow. No lie has its source in the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit. If you believe a lie, it wasn't taught to you by God. Whether that liar possesses the Spirit or not. See, a believer, just because he thinks something, doesn't mean the Spirit taught it to him. But whatever you know of the spiritual things of God had to be taught to you by the Spirit, because the Spirit searches the mind of God. Whatever lie one believes, it has not been taught to him by the Holy Spirit. Whatever a Christian knows of spiritual truth has been taught to him by the Spirit. But an unbeliever has no source of spiritual truth. If an unbeliever wants to teach you about spirituality, just laugh and shake your head. He has no foundation to do so. We may have heard the term many times, I'm not religious, but I am spiritual. What does this mean? I don't have God, but I depend on the spiritual forces of darkness. This is a biblical translation of that worldly ditty. It's demonic. Even for a Christian, 
He can be spiritual, but not religious, if he abandons this faith that he once had. This does not mean that he loses anything about his security, but he might lose his assurance. Security is something that is true of you, whether you believe it or not, whether you know it or not. But your assurance is the way you think about your security. Do you know that you are secure in Christ? It's true of you, whether you know it or not. Do you know it? Do you walk around afraid that God's going to take it from you? If you walk around in fear, you're walking around not trusting God. This is probably one of the hardest concepts to wrap our minds around, but do you know worrying is a sin? And you might give pushback on that, but what does it mean when you're worrying? It means you do not trust God. What has he ever done to show you that he is not trustworthy? Everything in scripture tells us he's trustworthy. It is a record of his faithfulness from beginning to end. And I guarantee you that everything in our lives points towards his faithfulness and our faithlessness. We have two sources that we can depend on. And when we try to depend on the cosmos system and then blame God when it doesn't work out, we are not going to grow. It's going to hurt you a whole bunch more than it hurts him. He's going to be saddened, of course, because all of the riches of grace that he has just waiting for you to access by means of the spirit lays untouched. But there is the spirit dwelling within you, just waiting for you to flip on that switch to renew your mind by God's word. Now, John goes into some important doctrine for these new believers. Remember, even these most basic believers are to understand these doctrines. This is, in other words, a starting point. We understand the divine unity. He says, who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies that the Father, denies the Father and the Son. Remember what Christ is. Christ is the Messiah, the Anointed One. This is just the idea of usurping the Christ. You do not believe that he is the Messiah, the Anointed One of God. If you believe this, its source is not from God. Its source is from the cosmos system. It is a lie. Jesus is the Christ. This liar is the Antichrist. He is a citizen of the cosmos system. He is not operating in God's will, but in Satan's. He is the one who denies the Father and the Son. You can't have one, but not the other. And that's kind of what these Epicureans and Gnostics, early Gnostics, came and were infecting the city of Ephesus with. We've got God the Father, and we know the deep spiritual things of him. And one of those deep spiritual things of him is that Christ was not truly God. That's not a deep spiritual thing of God. Those are the deep spiritual things of Satan. You cannot deny the Son and also have fellowship with the Father. 
When Christ cried out in John 12, he said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. Jesus came with the authority of the Father. He came as the messenger from the Father. To believe in his message is to believe in God the Father, just like to believe in the message of the apostles who were sent by Christ is to believe in Christ and to believe in God. So when John tells us in 1 John 1, 3, that when we believe what they have written, we have fellowship with them because they have fellowship with God. You cannot have fellowship with God apart from biblical truth. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. The abiding fellowship of God the Father and God the Son. Or this one that sent the Pharisees into a tizzy. I and the Father are one. They tried to stone him for this. The penalty for blasphemy. But it was not blasphemous because their source of thinking was the cosmos system. Satan's world. Not the scriptures which they purported to hold up to a high regard. They did not. They held their own world up, their own doctrines up. But there is a dichotomy here. He gives two different options. Everyone who denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. You get one, you get the other. You refuse one, you refuse the other. It's a package deal. Matthew 10.32, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father, who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father, who is in heaven. Now, this is a dangerous verse in the hands of people who interpret Scripture with their theological system instead of with Scripture. Because we like to fill in the gaps that aren't filled in for us. We have to ask the question, deny what? If we confess God or Jesus before men, he will also confess us before the Father. But if we deny him before men, we will deny or he will deny him before the Father. Most people fill in the word salvation here. If we deny Christ, before men, Jesus is going to deny us salvation. Lots of people will teach this. In fact, this is probably the majority view, and it is wrong, and it has its source in the cosmos system that does not want you to understand your security in Christ. Ask the question, deny what? Salvation? Because that would make no sense. We do not receive Christ by a public confession of him, but by faith. We cannot lose him. 
by denying a public confession. But we can lose rewards. Because we have not let this doctrine work its way into our being and into our actions. Because if we truly believe this, and if it has worked its way into our thinking, then it should come out. The more we meditate on this truth, the more willing we are to say it to a world that is opposed to it. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, Jesus says, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus is saying what he is saying and not what he is not saying. Jesus said, we'll be ashamed. This does not mean we will not go with him. But imagine standing before him and saying, yes, you gave me salvation. Yes, you gave me all the riches of grace. And I never touched them. I buried them. And also I denied you before everyone. Second Timothy answers this problem for us. Yet another verse that's dangerous without thinking carefully about it. Because we're supposed to meditate on scripture. We're supposed to think hard about it. We're not supposed to interpret it through our flesh, but to compare spiritual things with spiritual things. Paul says to Timothy, it is a trustworthy statement. Now this was probably a hymn that they sang in the early church. It is a trustworthy statement. If we died with him, we will also live with him. He starts with that for a reason because that's the foundational doctrine. Did Paul tell us already that we died with him? Yes, he did. He had already written the book of Revelation or of uh, Romans. Romans 6, 3 through 6 is where we find that we have died with him. We are identified in his death. We absolutely will live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Remember, we are training for reigning. If we fail to endure, our reign will not be as elevated. We will not have as much responsibility. We will not have proved ourselves faithful. If we deny him, he will deny us. Once again, we need to supply an object and we need to find out what that object is. If we deny him what, he will deny us what. If we deny him faith, or if we deny him service. To deny him faith would be needlessly redundant because that's the next line. And in fact, it makes an opposite proposition. If we are faithless, if we deny him faith, he remains faithful. This is the first one that has a negative corollary. If we don't do this, he will do this because he cannot deny himself. We are identified with him. Our position is secure in him. So if we deny him service, what does he deny us? Does he deny us life because we didn't serve him? No, that would contradict the first line. We died with him. We will live with him. Will he deny us our reign? No, but we will not have as much responsibility. Will he deny us rewards? Yes. And in fact, that's the one that is missed in the other three. Our life with him, our reign with him, 
and faith, salvation. But what is missed here is rewards, and it's not missed, it's just not stated, because he had stated already in first, first Second Timothy, he had already talked about the crowns that we would be rewarded. So what is this confession then? Confessing Jesus before men no more gains you salvation than denying him before men loses you salvation. But the one who denies that Jesus is the Son of God, the Christ, does not have fellowship with the Father. Fellowship is the issue after faith. Once we have believed and we are secured firmly in the double grip of God the Father and Jesus the Son, the issue at stake is not our salvation, but our fellowship with him, our growth in him. He does not have fellowship with the Father because he has believed a lie. Remember, fellowship depends on believing true doctrine. Our fellowship depends on doctrinal truth. So everyone who denies the Son does not have the Father, is not in fellowship with the Father. Now, if this is speaking of initial faith, if we never come to believe in the Son, then we do not have the Father either. But if we have been saved by faith, or through faith, by grace, but then we come to deny the Son, we do not lose our salvation with the Son because that's not at issue anymore. We lose our fellowship with the Son. And when we lose our fellowship with the Son, we lose our fellowship with the Father. But the one who confesses the Son has the Father also. Now remember what this word confess means. Unless it is stated in the context that it is a public profession before men, as was stated in Mark, then it does not mean public profession. It means agreeing. In fact, even a public profession is to agree publicly. The one who confesses the Son agrees with the doctrine about who the Son is, has the Father also. Remember our verse, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we need to continue in the faith that we first believed. 1 John 2.24 tells us, As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. That very first thing that you learned as Christians. That very first thing that you believed that made you a Christian. That Jesus died for you and he rose again on the third day. Let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. Colossians 3.16 tells us, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom and teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Abiding in the truth, abiding in scriptural doctrine, helps us abide in fellowship. If what we heard from the beginning does abide in us, then we abide in or have fellowship with the Son and with the Father.
Again, that was 1 John 1, 3 through 4. What we believe about God, what we think about God, affects our fellowship and intimacy with him because what we believe and what we think affects our actions. And now he's going to lay down another doctrine. We believe who Jesus is. He is the Son of Man, the Son of God, the incarnate Christ. He is the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah of God. And he gives us eternal life. See, this was the promise that they had been given that led them to desire Jesus. This is the promise which he himself promised to us, eternal life. This was the guarantee given to those who would believe. John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hands. And guess what, believer, that includes you. You also cannot snatch yourself out of the Father's hands by being faithless, because he is faithful and cannot deny himself. And just as he is in God, when we are born again, we are in him. And this is a positional truth, whether we experience it or not. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands I and the Father are one. John 4.47 This was what he came promising when he came in the flesh. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. And this is important. This is not actually a verb here. This is a participle. So it does not mean he who believes continually, as some people say. It just simply means the believer an act of faith with no reference to duration, no reference to time. Absolutely believer that if you have believed, you should continue to believe. But if anyone comes and tells you that failure to believe after you have been saved loses your security, that you are no longer saved or that you never were saved, this is a doctrine of demons meant to undermine your security in Christ. Because a believer that falls out of the faith does not need to be saved again. He needs to be reminded of what is true about him. So that he can continue to walk the Christian life. If you feel like you have to start over again every time you fall back, you will never move past square one. Because you will have no confidence in God's work. And how can you ever have his, any confidence in his work through you? If you cannot trust him to do what he says he will do, eternal here is a quality. It cannot be eternal life if it can be lost. For this is the will of my Father that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. Could it be more clear? If you have believed, you have an eternal destiny. And it is as secure as anything else in this world ever could be. Because it is finished already. The work needed to get you there is already accomplished. It is already weighed to your account. 
And John 17, 3 tells us this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. How do we know God but by his word? This was why we were created, for fellowship with him. This was what we lost in the garden. And this is the eternity that we have to look forward to. I'm going to end here shortly, even though we're not quite done, but Ephesians 1.13 tells us, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, you heard the message of truth, you heard the gospel preached, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, perfect tense, past action with present results, you were sealed in him. With the Holy Spirit of promise, guess what? You can't undo that seal. This term for seal was an agricultural term. It was how they would seal a sample of the crop that year. And they would send it to whomever they were sending the crop. They would receive this sealed package and open it in, a, in order to test the perfection of that crop, the purity of that crop. That seal could not be broken by anyone but to whom it was sent. Nothing could tamper with what was inside of that packet. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. So who is this package intended for? God's own possession. He is the one that opens us up into the riches of glory in eternal life. We cannot unseal this package. All this to the praise of his glory. Romans 8.11 promises us, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, which this if is a first-class conditional, it is taken for granted that this is true. If the spirit of him who raises Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So we'll end with this. Eternal life is what? The believer is to continue in sound doctrine to grow spiritually and in intimacy with God. Among these most important doctrines is eternal security. Failure to understand your position in Christ and its permanent riches of grace results in underdevelopment of one's spiritual life. Abandonment of the doctrine of security results in spiritual myopia, meaning you can't see spiritually, and atrophied faith. The faith muscle grows weak. You find it hard to believe God for anything when you let go of eternal security. I'll end there. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you so much for the gift of eternal life, for the security that we have in you, for the finished work that we can look at in your Son, and for the faithfulness of the Father that we can look at in all of Scripture. And we can be absolutely sure and absolutely confident that on the day you return, we will also be with you. We ask that you keep us in the faith. We ask that the Spirit continue to lead and guide us and that we be submissive to your will. 
that we learn doctrine and that we apply it to our lives, that we learn how to think spiritually rather than thinking worldly. We praise you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.